Welcome back to the Musketeer Report podcast. Paul Fritsch and Rick Boring with you. It's been a while since we podcast. It was before Big East play. We previewed the Big East season. Uh, Xavier's played three Big East games since then. They've won one of them. They have lost two of them. Xavier sits at 7-7 seven and seven right now overall on the season. 1-2 and two in Big East play. We were recording this on Thursday, and it was a heartbreaker for Xavier last night against Villanova. 66-65 loss. Just to kind of go over where Xavier is right now in the uh, overall picture of the uh, national landscape, Xavier's 41st on Ken Palm. Actually moved up a couple of spots in the net after last night from 61st to 59th, but still not the best spot, but not the worst spot either, just going by uh, how Xavier looks there from, from the national perspective. Defensively on Ken Palm, Xavier sits at 23rd, so a top 25 defensive team. Uh, in the country, but 78th offensively. The offense has certainly been uh, where Xavier has struggled, none more so than what we saw last night at Villanova. And that's where we're going to start on this one. I know we haven't done a podcast since before Big East play, but by this point, with an 11-day layoff in between games, Merry Christmas to everybody. Happy New Year. Um, I I think everybody by this point knows what has happened at St. John's and Seton Hall. So we're mainly going to focus on what happened last night at Villanova and also kind of how the Big East is shaping up right now, some pretty significant injury news. We'll get into all that later. But, Rick, before I turn it over to you, just looking at last night's game and how it went down for Xavier, you and I were texting after the game was over, and I covered a lot of this on the rebound rundown. If you didn't listen to that, I'll I'll go back over it. If you listen to the rebound rundown, this is basically going to be the exact same thought here. My takeaway from last night's game against Villanova was that everything that needed to go right for Xavier to win that game at the pavilion happened. Xavier was perfect from the free throw line. They went 10 for 10. They only turned the ball over eight times. They ended up out rebounding Villanova. But the problem was that Xavier didn't take advantage of a lot of the opportunities that they needed to. Xavier had eight turnovers on the game. They turned Villanova over 12 times, but Xavier only scored eight points off of those 12 Villanova turnovers. Yeah, Xavier out-rebounded Villanova, but like Sean Miller talked about after the game, the rebounding was really what hurt Xavier because they gave up so many offensive rebounds in untimely situations to Villanova that while Xavier had 15 offensive rebounds to Villanova's 11, the second chance points are where you really look at the context of that. And in second chance points, Villanova had 17 of those to Xavier's 10, especially none bigger than that five-point trip at the end of the first half where Villanova went to the line, the free throws, the miss to get the rebound, go back up, the and one. Those are the kinds of trips that really hurt you in games like this. And also, your two best players in Quincy Olivari and Desmond Claude going a combined eight for 30 from the field. Desmond Claude finished with 11 points. Quincy finished with 14, but he was seven for seven from the line. One for eight from three. Anything happens in this game differently from the field and Xavier wins it. Xavier was 10 for 21 on layups in this game. Even for how bad Xavier has struggled offensively at points this year, Rick, this was an uncharacteristically bad game offensively. And in the biggest moments, Desmond Claude had a layup with 12 seconds left and then wasn't able to convert that. And then as the buzzer sounded, wasn't able to hit a shot from the from the elbow that would have been a buzzer beating win. Really, really tough night for Desmond, and he just looks off. It looks like I, I said it on the spaces after the game. It's almost like he's got the yips. Yeah. So I have some thought. Let's let's save the whole Desmond conversation a little bit. Let's talk about those yeah. two final plays first um, yep. and the team overall because I want to get into a Desmond conversation because I think there are definitely some people that are misunderstanding what's taking place with this team and what's going on with Desmond right now. But um, the the two final shots, what were your thoughts on those two plays? Cause I, the, the one, the drive in real time, I thought, Oh man, that's when you got to finish. And maybe I still feel that way, but also looking back at it, cause I listened to Sean in the post game and his initial, when they asked him about those plays, he said, we got the right shot for the right guy, right shots for the right guy. Um, Desmond might've gotten fouled on the first one is, is what he said. Or I think Desmond could have gotten fouled on the first one. I went back and watched it. I mean, Xavier's in the bonus at this point. Desmond starts that drive. There is a pretty physical collision right before they get to the block as he's dribbling. So that alone could have been a foul right there that sends him to the line for the bonus free throws. Then after that, he jumps up to finish and everyone's like, he's point blank. Why didn't he finish it? Well, when you watch back, 
right before he lets go of the ball, his right arm just goes flying sideways. And basically, you can see another arm swing in and slap him on the wrist. Now, maybe you're going to tell me he's got to go in stronger than that. He still has to find a way to get through there. Okay, maybe you're right. I mean, I see a lot of 5'8 guys that are way over 200 pounds who are telling me that, that I'm pretty uncertain how they're so sure of how you are able to finish that and how you're supposed to go up with that. I, I didn't know they had so much experience doing this. But um, I, I'll be honest. I, I I think there's a legitimate argument that, that he might have gotten fouled on that one. And it is what yeah. it is. He, he didn't finish it. Maybe he got fouled. Maybe didn't. They didn't get the call. I get it. They're on the road. That kind of is what it is. Yeah, they got the look that they wanted. There's no doubt about that. You get Great Desmond play. Claude dri- driving to the baseline, getting to the rim. You got the look you wanted. In real time, you're not seeing the foul, and on the road at Villanova, you're probably not getting that call uh, because it was just it was so bang bang. It was quick. I, you're you're in my mind, you're not going to get that call on the floor in a situation like that, especially going to the line. But I mean, I, I, I mean, like, I don't know. There's two. There, like, there's two fouls on the play. There's a pretty significant bump right in front of the official, and they're the only two there. It's not like it's a crowd yeah. of bodies. And then. You're saying he's not going to get that call. Everyone's saying that because it looks hard from our vantage point, from the the view that from we had, TV. which is yeah. you know up in the upper deck shooting down from midcourt. If you're right underneath the basket and you see a guy's arm get slapped and fly sideways as he's shooting a layup, I don't know. I think that is a call that you sometimes get. But um, regardless of whether or not they got well, screwed on it, that, I think it, the other thing is everyone was like, why did the ball go to Dez? It should have gone to Quincy Oliveri or someone else. The whole play was... Everyone knows the ball is going to Quincy in that situation. Run a misdirection action over on the left side of the floor. Get their entire defense over there and let Desmond have a one-on-one. The play was a beautiful play. It worked to perfection. Yeah, they got exact. And how many times last night against Villanova did they do exactly what they wanted? The ball just didn't go in. They got what they wanted. They drew something up. They did what they defensively and offensively. Trapping down low, trapping whatever it is. They just couldn't actually convert offensively especially there at the end when they needed to a couple the, the one point too about Dez's drive along the baseline and most people know this but there was 12 seconds left in that game I mean there was a lot of it wasn't like he would have finished that Xavier would have gone up by one there's two seconds it's a it's a Hail Mary pass and maybe the ball gets tipped whatever Villanova had would have had an entire possession to come down set it up they still had a timeout the game wasn't over at that point um were you at all surprised that Davion, it ended up working out that Xavier had a shot at the end, but were you at all surprised that Davion McKnight passed up a wide open three with five seconds left and took the drive to the rim? Yeah, a little bit. I, I don't know if that was a, a panic mode or what, but I think maybe there was some indecisiveness. And then once he saw the wide open lane, I thought he did the smart thing of not trying to go somewhere else with it or get it to a teammate, just go straight to the rim, lay it in and reset. Because I mean, in that situation, if you, all of a sudden then force a turnover or get a steal in the backcourt. Now you've got a real chance to win that game the, like easily. And uh, even without it, it still turned out that Xavier had a good shot. They they missed, I think, the first free throw and made the second. Is that how it played out? Or just missed the front no, end of one both. Oh, is that what? Okay, yeah. So, I mean, they you still... Mean, you mean Dixon on the other end? Dixon on the other end, yeah. Did he miss yeah, he both? Yeah, he missed both. Okay, he missed yeah, both. that's right. Yeah. So, I mean, they still end up with a great chance the way it played out. Um, so, the final play, Dixon misses both. And Desmond gets the rebound and starts pushing it up the floor. At that point, I mean, once he starts pushing the boat to the floor, there's about three seconds left, you know, because there's the miss, he grabs it, and the clock's already ticking. So by the time he turns up the floor and he's starting to dribble, there's about three seconds left. Now, I saw all types of people talking about he should have passed it, should have got it gone somewhere else. Why did he take the shot that he did? I mean, my feeling is with three seconds like that in a scramble mode situation where you're catching a rebound and trying to fly up to court, they got as good of a look as you can almost possibly think of being that Desmond got a reasonably open. Eric Dixon obviously contested late on the shot, but he got a reasonably open 12 to 13 footer right next to the free throw line. Uh, Obviously, he came up short on it. Tough break there. It was a tough shooting night, especially from the mid range. But what was what was your thoughts on that final play? Did you think there was time or somewhere someone else to get the ball to? No, no. And going, especially going back and I watched the the last play probably 20 times and tried to figure out if there was any way that he, the only thing maybe was that he did stop his momentum and go to pull up with like 1.1 left, which is plenty of time to drive to the hoop. So maybe he could have tried to drive in and draw a foul on Dixon. But again, 
then you're just banking on a foul because Dixon's been in that situation a million times. But by the way, oh, this the same thing that just happened on the previous play that they ran where everyone yes. said, you're not going to get that call in that situation. But now they want him to go try to get that call in that situation. So exactly. Like, you can't have it both ways, right? Exactly. So so the only opportunity there, because everybody else to Villanova's credit, I thought Villanova did a really good job getting back and shutting really off good. every other off. They did a really good job making sure that Desmond had to make a decision there. Do I want to drive? Do I want to pull up? Look. He pulled up. I thought it was a good shot. He, it was open. He just didn't hit it, and he didn't hit anything last night. And that was just it was just how it went. So, um, the, on on the the final play where he's pulling up, I think one of the things people wanted again was get the ball somewhere else. And quite honestly, the the issue I have with that a lot of times is who else do you want taking shots on this Xavier team aside from Quincy or Des? Neither one of them shot well last night, so you're kind of it's like pick your poison. Neither one of them's having a great shooting night; they're a little bit off. But who else do you trust taking that shot in that situation, especially that moment they're in? And and my point with that is, they I think it was Hakeem Hart. I, I could be off on that. I'm not sure who the Villanova defender was, but whoever it was that was in charge of or was the closest man to Quincy Oliveri in transition there did a fantastic job of coming all the way up to mid court and denying Quincy. So even if Des had had the wherewithal to think like, let me get this ball to Quincy really quickly up the floor and get him a quick three Villanova had taken that away in transition, which was great situational awareness on their part on the defensive end. It's part of what makes them so good defensively is they have high IQ players that understand the situation and know to do something like that. So, I mean, quite honestly, Des did about the only thing he could in that situation, other than maybe putting his head down for another dribble or two, trying to get into Eric Dixon's body and draw a foul. Um, but the other the other part about that is everyone's like, oh, you, you had one second left. Why didn't you take another dribble or two? Well, he started that possession dribbling full speed with under four seconds to go. You don't know exactly what the clock says in the heat of the moment while you're trying to maneuver around guys and get your shot off. He just knows, hey, I got about a second left, and at some point I got to get this thing out of my hands or it, the game's going to be over. Well, the last thing you want is to have an opportunity and then to not get a shot off. You know, do the, <laughs> exactly. the, Z the Xavier 2018 Providence Big East Tournament game where Karim Canner makes the shot from the wing, but it's a second late. Like, the last thing that you want is for that situation to happen. So at least Xavier got a shot. They got a pretty good shot. Yeah, it just really didn't good go in for, for, and, for a game and the game situation where you only had a few seconds to get the ball full court. That's as good of a shot as you can ask for. And that would have been a total steal of a game, given the way that it played out. I thought Xavier, like I said a minute ago, played exceptionally well defensively. Um, I thought they they got everything that they wanted offensively. There were some points in the game where I thought maybe they were forcing some shots, but either way, I thought they were still relatively getting what they wanted. They got Villanova to speed up, kind of play their pace. They were outscored in the first four minutes of the second half, but going back and looking at it, it wasn't quite as dominant as it wasn't as bad of a first five minutes of the second half as it looked. It was just kind of the way it played out and the speed that it was playing out. It felt like Villanova was hitting a lot, but Xavier only got outscored by two in the first uh, four minute war of the second half. So it wasn't quite as bad. Um, but just overall for a game, and this was my kind of macro takeaway from it, that you had an opportunity to go on the road in a game where a four-point deficit last night felt like 10 for most of the game. Because every time Xavier cut it to four, Villanova would respond with a 5-0, 6-0 run. They'd bring it back to 8, 9, or 10. But Xavier would respond. They'd get it back to four. And it was just like that for the entire second half. Then in the final four-minute war, I mean, Xavier didn't allow... Villanova to make a shot from the field for the final 607 of the game. Everything that Xavier needed to happen from Villanova happened, and they still just couldn't win. They couldn't steal the game. They couldn't make the plays when they needed to. Uh, it, it just that's a really brutal one. That's that's really frustrating. And that was the way I felt after the game. You know, I on the spaces we had a lot of people calling in. There was a lot of positivity for the most part of hey, they're moving in the right direction. But at some point. You have to win a game like this because, yeah, you do have nine quad one opportunities left, but a lot of those are on the road, especially in January. When you're going to Providence. You're going to Connecticut. Come, I know they come home to Connecticut next week, but I'm just saying I think three of the four quad one opportunities left in January are on the road. So it's a tough stretch here to try and get some of these wins. 
And that was a golden opportunity last night with a pretty masterful coaching job from Sean to keep them right in this game that it's really a tough pill to swallow to see your best players go eight for 30 from the field. Yeah. So let's, let's have the, or the uh, Desmond Claude conversation now. And I, I want to start with it. What, Cause you said that Xavier got pretty much whatever they wanted on the offensive. And I would totally disagree with that in the first half. Xavier shot like 30%. They were 0.8 points per possession. I thought Sean did a really good job of getting them some looks with some good set plays and some good actions that they ran to, to get them free a few times. But overall, I thought they really struggled against Villanova's switching man to man to create good looks. And I think that lends itself to the Desmond Claude conversation that needs to be had. Desmond Claude had a rough shooting night and he missed a fair amount of shots from the mid range. Some of them, I think people, part of what frustrated people is they, they were thinking he was playing selfishly because he was taking some tough mid range shots that weren't necessarily the best of looks. After the game, Sean Miller was not too displeased with the way they played offensively. And his big comment from that was, look, we didn't turn the ball over, which to me is the most important stat for this year's team on the offensive end. We didn't give away a lot of possessions. And Villanova is a really good defensive team. So how does that all add up to what we're talking about with Desmond Claude? Well, quite frankly, Xavier just doesn't have enough offensive firepower. They have Desmond Claude who can create for you. They have Quincy Oliveri who can knock down shots, but he's kind of limited in what he can do. He can knock down shots for himself. He's not out there making other guys a lot better, and he's not creating a lot off the dribble. And we've seen now with some focused efforts, I thought Mark Armstrong did a really good job for Villanova of staying with him, taking away those those catch the catch and shoot opportunities for Quincy, really making him work for quick transition looks, and that's about all he's going to get. You're not going to give him anything in the half court. After that, Xavier doesn't have a lot of options of guys that are ready, willing, confident enough or skilled enough right now to step up and give them consistent offense against the team of Villanova's caliber. So what you end up with is Desmond Claude oftentimes getting the ball back with about 10 seconds left on the shot clock. Nothing's really happening. No one else has been able to make something happen. And now he's got a hand grenade that he's got to do something with in the next few seconds, right? That's what you saw a lot in last night's game. And that's why he ends up, you know, going, uh, whatever it was. I mean, he shot five for 17. Yeah, so um, I, I think when you look back, six of those 17 shots that he took came with fewer than 10 seconds left on the shot clock. Now, that's not an excuse for everything that happened. He did not have a good shooting night. He did not make a lot of shots from the mid-range. But again, when when six of those 17 shots are coming with him trying to make something out of nothing in a dead possession, and the rest of the team is just basically like, hey, sorry, we couldn't get it done. Go do something for us, Des." against a really good defensive team that's really good in the gaps and is really good at packing in and taking away what Desmond does best, I think that's what le- what leads to a night that looks like that. It's not necessarily that Des can't play. It's not that Des had a horrific shooting night and didn't make anything. Because I'd also challenge you if you go back and look at some of the shots he made. Like there was one where it was like under five seconds in the shot clock. He drives his man in, does a vicious step back towards the baseline. This was late in the first half. And shot uh, a 15-footer on the baseline all in all very quick move, yes. one motion type of deal where it's like, that's an NBA move right there, you know? And there are a few plays in the second half that were the same type of thing. He had some really impressive shots that he made against a tough defensive matchup for him too. So I don't think it was like Desmond was nearly as bad as everyone else thinks he was. And this whole piling on Desmond as if his whole season has been terrible. I don't understand at all. Like go look through Xavier's efficiency metrics, go look through the season plus minus i mean not that that's the end all be all but desmond's typically ranked at the top for xavier in any efficiency metric that you look at he's been their best player overall he's the one that can do the most things for them and offensively he's the only one that gives them a chance to do some things running him off these zoom actions and doing all the different things they're asking him to do against a lot of these top tier defense defensive teams. Now you may argue, well, Xavier has to have more talent than that. If that's the case. And I think that's a fair argument. This, this roster isn't what you'd hope it would be in terms of offensive firepower, but Desmond Claude is not the issue for this team. No, I don't think so either. And I think looking back at that first half, it was kind of interesting, the contrasting styles and Villanova trying to slow things down as much as they were. And Xavier trying to, 
play at this breakneck speed. And it was this who's going to win, who's going to prevail. And that and I thought Xavier did a pretty good job, especially as it got into the second half, of speeding Villanova up and trying to play the game. I thought the game trended more towards Xavier's style as it went on. And again, a check in the box for what Xavier was able to do. It just was a slog through that first half until they were able to establish that into the second half. Now the score yeah. doesn't re- the score doesn't really reflect that at sixty six sixty five, but it wasn't the prettiest offensive uh, night either for either team. No, it, it really wasn't, and part of that is because you know we look at the score and it's such a low scoring game and we think, oh, it was an ugly game, and it was for a lot of it. But then you go back and you check the points per possession, and they're not as bad as you would think. I think Xavier ended up right below one point per possession. Villanova yeah. was right over a point per possession. You're like, well, how did that happen if it was so loose? Well, it was a low possession game. Villanova just really slows it down with the style that they play on both offense and defense, and they do a good job of of dictating the pace. So that was really what happened there. And again, it, it was not a good offensive performance. Xavier shot under 37%. So I'm not trying to paint it like, oh yeah, it was great offense. It definitely was not. But it also wasn't as inefficient and as ugly as it felt I don't think. Now, you mentioned something there at the about how at the end of the game, Xavier was able to speed Villanova up a little bit, make them uncomfortable. That was something that I thought was one of the most exciting parts of this game for a Xavier fan was the wrinkle we saw defensively in the second half, and especially late in this game, with Xavier going to the three-quarter court press, the, the mid-court trapping that they were doing that forced some turnovers, forced Villanova to call a timeout late. Right after they came out of the timeout, then Xavier got a steal that they took back the other way. Now, that was something that Sean said that they had gotten the opportunity to work on during the the Christmas break. They spent some time doing that and, and honing that in. It seemed like from his comments, that's something we're going to see more of going forward. That They're going to lean into having a few more wrinkles defensively. And I was shocked at how poorly Villanova handled a lot of that pressure. I mean, that's not something we usually see out of Villanova where the, it's methodical. It, it's surgical. They know yeah. how to handle a lot of those things. They did it. And in fact... At one of the crucial possessions coming down the end of the game, I forget the sequence, but it was a turnover to to Davion McKnight. They trapped the ball. Xavier, to their credit, didn't foul, able to get the steal. I mean, it was an uncharacteristic. And now, maybe you know, you never know, Rick. Maybe maybe this isn't so uncharacteristic for Nova going forward. Maybe this is what they well, are, especially without Justin know. Moore. That yeah, right. I mean he's definitely yeah. the, the side of the leader he's a out stabilizer. there. Of their yeah. that, that handles yeah. all of it, makes the good decisions, and it's like, oh, we've got him dead to rights, and then Justin Moore ball fakes, just steps under, makes a yeah. great pass, forty feet, and all of a sudden they're in transition. And I thought Xavier Sasha Siani got got uh, caught on a fake in the first half, but outside of that, Xavier did a really really good job of not biting on the shot fakes as much as they have in the past stayed down big time that that is yeah. true that is something Xavier's had issues with in the past is biting on all those head fakes and letting them get to two yeah. feet and then pivot around them for easy baskets and you just didn't see that in this game I thought Xavier was disciplined for the most part now don't confuse that with tough physically tough they were disciplined they were in the right spots a lot of times and then there were moments where they just got pushed around where they couldn't corral defensive boards I think you know it's funny because Lazar Djokovic like he had a great and one he had a few moments defensively where he like had a great closeout on the perimeter and then stayed in front of a guy and then you just have those moments where there's a rebounding situation and you find a Villanova player getting an offensive board and Lazar is rolling around on the baseline somewhere out of bounds and you're going (laughs) How did he end up over there once again? Yeah. Yeah. And one name we haven't mentioned at all yet, who I thought had a fantastic game last night was Davion McKnight. Yeah. And Sean called him out after the game saying that he was outstanding. I mean, when you go three assists, no turnovers against Villanova's defense, that's that's pretty impressive in itself. The fact that he's leading the Big East in assist to turnover ratio is, is very impressive. Now, Davion McKnight is not an explosive scorer, who's going to lead this team. Is is he a limited option at the Big East level? Yeah, he's not the most talented point guard in the conference, but he is doing what this team is asking of him, which is playing really soundly in terms of taking care of the basketball, taking and making open shots when he gets them, which, by the way, I believe he was two for two from beyond the arc in this one. Two for two or two for three? Thanks. I think two for two. Two Two for two. Yeah, Yeah. he was two for two, and Trey Green is two for three. So um, I think when when you can get four for five, 
three-point shooting out of your point guard position and they're not taking a whole lot of shots and they're taking care of the basketball, you're going to be fine with that. And I actually thought Trey Green had one of his better performances in the first half. I think Davion was just so good in the second half. He scored 10 of his 12 points after halftime. He had all three of his assists after halftime. He was really good, so I just think they felt like they couldn't take him off the floor during that stretch. But Trey Green in the first half, he knocked down two threes, one of them was exactly what we talked about in the matchups article leading into the game where it's like, hey, Villanova is going to sell out to keep their defense tight, take away post feeds, take away drivers. You're going to get some open threes. Your shooters have to make them when they get that opportunity. In the first half, that came to be exactly for Trey Green. I mean, there was a situation where his man doubled down on the post because he saw a potential high-low action coming. He took away that pass. It left Trey Green open for a split second on that left wing, and he he buried that three quickly. So... You know, I, I thought I thought overall the point guard play was a, a really nice bright spot for Xavier. And that was one thing I kept thinking throughout the game as Davion played better and better was that hey, you get this guy back next year, right? I mean, this is somebody who's you can see he's learning the system, he's becoming more uh stable, he's he's becoming more confident in what he's trying to do and how he's trying to run this offense and the speed at which he plays with is incredible. So it's exactly what Sean's looking for right now. So it's good to see him settling into that. Um, he, he's come a long way too. Cause I, I think, yeah. you know, at the beginning of the year, he really lacked confidence and understanding of what he was being asked to do. Cause he's had to change his role a lot. He was the go-to scorer for Western Kentucky last year and pretty much shooting whenever he wanted every time down the floor. And now he is mostly a distributor who they're asking to take open shots when they present themselves. Yep. All right, Rick, anything else on Villanova before we kind of look forward toward uh, what's to come here in the next week or so? I, I mean, I think just reemphasizing that the front court is a major issue for this team. And I think part of what we, I think they did a pretty good job overall against Eric Dixon and defending, but you also had a Villanova team that's not very big and not the most physically imposing front court that you'll face. Eric Dixon is very good. It's not taking anything away from him, but I think it was a good matchup game for Xavier, and that's another reason why we saw a close game here against Villanova. I think you're going to see that a lot throughout Big East play. The better the front court that Xavier goes against, the more difficult that matchup is going to look in in conference. But if they f- play those teams like Seton Hall, um, like Villanova in this case, I think because they're not as big, I think that bodes well for Xavier. So we're recording this Thursday afternoon. Uh, Xavier does not play again for a week, which, by the way, turns out it's a pretty good thing that this bye week came when it when it did for Xavier. They had some uh, plane issues last night getting back from Philadelphia. So the plane broke down. They weren't able to get home overnight. And then the support staff had to take a bus home, and the team flew home was my understanding of it on uh, late Thursday morning. So it was a disaster of a trip back from Philadelphia it's a good thing for Xavier that they're not turning around and trying to play another game on Saturday, especially if that was the UConn game on Saturday. They get a week off before they have to play UConn. But this is another reason, kind of looking at this from the big picture, like I was talking about, where it's frustrating that Xavier wasn't able to pull that off last night because Villanova was without Justin Moore. UConn probably will be without Donovan Klingon next week. He might be back. I, I don't know yet, but they'll probably be without Donovan Klingon. And then if you haven't heard yet, Providence, Bryce Hopkins tore his ACL. He's done for the season. So you have back-to-back-to-back games for Xavier, quad one opportunities where the best player or one of the most impactful players from a Xavier perspective, where you're talking about a front court player in Klingon and Bryce Hopkins, that'll give you the most trouble, is not there. And Xavier has opportunities here in a huge way to pick up quad one wins. Xavier has four quad one games the rest of uh, January, three of those four are on the road. The one exception, of course, is UConn next Wednesday. But then they go to Providence, back home against Butler and Georgetown, which is a nice little softer, at least part of the schedule, before you go on the road to Creighton and UConn. January is brutal before before February lightens up a little bit. And we'll be podcasting through all that, so we don't need to get too far down in the weeds of it. But I don't know if we'll podcast again before UConn, which leaves us here to talk about the fact that Xavier has chances here and they had a chance that if Des Claude hits that buzzer beater last night, all of a sudden it's you're looking through this from a totally different lens because you're two and one in conference play. You come home to play a Donovan Klingon list 
UConn team, and then you go on the road to the Amp, which is an impossible place to play for everybody not named Seton Hall, but they don't have Bryce Hopkins. That turns out to be a decent matchup. You're looking through this through a whole different prism if Xavier's able to win that game last night. You really are. It's maybe such a maybe good... even maybe even still anyway, but especially if they had won that game. It's such a good point, Paul. I mean, the injury factors in these games and and how this is breaking down in the, in the opening first few games of conference play. I mean, if Xavier wins that game at Villanova and you're going into this UConn game without Don McClingan and thinking you have a chance, you're already two and one with a road win at Villanova. Now we are starting to talk more about Xavier's resume again all of a sudden because let's be honest, as we've mentioned before, this is this has become kind of a de- developmental year for Xavier. They played themselves out of a resume in the non-conference slate. They really aren't in the tournament picture right now. They'd have to play their way back in with a fantastic run through Big East play, and that's probably not very likely. Um, but all of a sudden, had you won last night's game and you're seeing some of these injuries unfold, it does start looking a little bit more likely potentially. So I still think that it's probably not something we're going to be talking a whole lot or worrying much about when we get into like February. But that being said, the the point about the injuries is a notable one and you don't want to see anybody get injured and certainly not what happened to Bryce Hopkins because he's one of the most fun players to watch in this conference, I think. But that definitely changes the way Xavier matches up with these teams. I mean, Bryce Hopkins was one of the guys that we kept mentioning after that Oakland game happened, and we were like, oh, man, that that doesn't bode well against some of these Big East front courts. Bryce Hopkins was like the main guy that kept coming to mind when we would talk about that. So, I mean, him being out for the year really changes the way Xavier matches up with Providence and the way that Providence is likely to do throughout the course of of conference uh, play here. So, yeah, I mean, it'd be... It'd be interesting to see now where Xavier is going after another week or two where they play this tough stretch. Where are things going to shake out? Because we might find Xavier uh, more in the top half of this conference than we expected all of a sudden. And what a weird stretch of this season where you go almost three weeks and you play one game. I mean, I can't remember any point where uh, it's happened like this, that they have an 11-day break. They play one game, and then they have a week off. You get your two bye weeks this year, one to start conference play, basically, here in the beginning of January, and then the other one's in mid-February. The the weekend of February 17th and 18th, Xavier does not have a game. Uh, But I guess in the end, with travel issues, it's nice, but also it's... You're trying to develop this consistency. The guys are on campus. It's not, the classes don't resume until next week. The guys are on campus, so you're still practicing. You're still involved. It's not like they're going home now or anything, but still. But on the bright spot, I mean, think about because of the the slow nature of this team's learning curve in preseason practices when you added Sasha and Lazar right before or right at the beginning of preseason practices and you added Gitas basically a month before the start of preseason practices. That wasn't a normal month of September and month of October as you led up to the season. They were way behind the eight ball. They were doing a lot of day one type stuff that they normally would be focused on in the summertime. They had to do that right before the start of the season. So we saw things like a post trap that wasn't able to be implemented against Oakland. Now all of a sudden they've got a post trap and it worked to perfection in this game against Eric Dixon a few times, including right before the end of the first half when Trey Green went down there and tied him up and, and forced a turnover with it. So you got that as part of, I think, this long stretch of being able to work on yourself and, and practice a lot, maybe even do some two-a-day practices or or get some extra work in with the guys individually uh, doing some stuff and watching film with them. So you have that. And then we also saw the defensive wrinkles that they threw out there late in the game against Villanova with, with the pressing. And I think we're going to continue to see them build on that. You mentioned Xavier's numbers at the top of the show, their Ken Palm efficiency numbers. They're 78th in offensive efficiency, they're 23rd in defensive efficiency. So I think the coaching staff is going to continue to find ways to lead in to their strong defense. Yep. Uh, so now you have a, the week off before UConn, and I, I'm sure UConn will be, uh, they will be all enough motivated after what happened last year at the Centos Center to, to come into this game and, and uh, you know, defending national champions for as well as UConn has played this year when they're ninth in uh, in the net right now they have the uh, one loss a 15 point loss to Seton Hall but they're two and one in the Big East their other loss on the season was to Kansas 
69 to 65. That was at Allen Fieldhouse. Otherwise, uh, all wins for UConn on the season. And they do play again. UConn does. They travel to Butler on Friday. Um, and then they have the rest of the time off before they play uh, at Xavier. It's kind of a tough stretch in January for UConn, too, between Butler and having to go on the road to Xavier. Then you come home against Creighton, you go to Villanova. So four of the next five games for uh, UConn are quad one games for them, too. So it's well, a big stretch and, for both teams. And right now they're doing it without Klingon, which is yes. a, a huge difference, and obviously a huge difference for the Xavier matchup. So they're, they're kind of similar to Villanova, not in the way they do things or their personnel necessarily, but just the tempo and style of game. This could be another one of those, assuming Xavier plays well and is in it, this could be another one of those games that's like in the 50s going into the final minutes and you're you're just hoping to make a few more shots than the other team all right rick uh, i think we've covered a lot of what we're going to talk about we've been going for about a half hour here any news notes nuggets i haven't covered you've had some recruiting uh posts on the message board i know usually we leave those for the message board but sometimes you kind of tease them a little bit um anything there that we haven't talked about yeah, I th- like you said, I think there was a little bit of movement in terms of the recruiting for next year. And I I, I spelled this out. I did a bit of a, a recruiting refresh. We haven't really been talking about recruiting much because there hasn't been a lot of recruiting going on right now. And the reason for that is Xavier was oversigned in terms of their roster. You think Zach Fremantle and Jerome Hunter are still technically part of the team. They're going to be back next year. You factor in those guys. Xavier is over scholarships a couple this year with the, the foreign players that they brought in. So it, as if everyone stayed next season, that's capable of staying. And obviously we don't expect that to happen. But if everyone came back and Jerome and Zach came back, they'd still be, I think, over scholarship by one for next season as things currently stand, or they'd be like right at it. So they don't exactly have space. They're not looking to fill extra spots. But that being said, they did just have a really talented 17-year-old point guard from France on a visit. He came over, he visited Creighton, he visited Xavier, and then he visited Alabama before he, before going to Zaga. Not, not Creighton, Gonzaga. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, again, Zaga, uh, Xavier, yeah. and uh, and then Alabama before heading back to uh france to play with his team so i think we'll see some more information on that come out over the next several weeks as we get closer towards the end of the season and he'll then either enroll in a college in the summer or potentially start his pro career somewhere else overseas but there's more information on and details on him on the message board right now so check that out and also get the rest of that kind of recruiting refresh that tells you where xavier is at for next year all right, Rick. Uh, good podcast here. It's good Lord. I mean, I'm. If you couldn't hear it, I'm. I, uh, I'm sorry that I've sounded like I've just been uh, punched in the nose. It's. Just, I've been battling here the last couple of weeks. You're a gamer, so. Polly. Fighting through it. We're we're trying. We I thought we were on the upswing, and then we regressed this week. Real quick, and, uh, real quick though, I yeah. want to ask you about something before we sign off here because you yeah, guys yeah. did. Um, I don't know if this is the one that's been received the best, but it's definitely up there. If not the Chris Mack episode of the Sean Miller podcast, Oh yeah, hearing the two Xavier co- former Xavier coaches and now uh, current Xavier coach again, trading stories, going back and forth. What was your favorite part of that or the most insightful part of that podcast? I thought it was really interesting listening to them both talk about their perspectives of the sweet 16. If you haven't heard it, that story that Sean told about TJ McConnell uh, was incredible. You know, hey, I, TJ, I called Coach Mack and asked your opinion, asked for his opinion of you. He said you weren't you weren't tough enough. You know, I lied about that. And I just like the the <laughs> the mind think games. You're good that, enough to play at Arizona. Yeah, <laughs> the the mind games that the coaches play, and then Mack, you know, joking back with a, uh, oh, that must have been why he didn't shake my hand in the post game. You know, those types of things where I saw a lot of reaction after, and obviously. You know, there are some people that probably will never forgive Chris Mack for leaving. And I, I will never understand. I don't, you and I were texting about this. I, I can't even wrap my mind around. In fact, I thought it was a joke. I thought it was satire for years, but I saw enough people post it that I, I guess it's not. I, some people believing that Chris had signed a deal before the NCAA tournament, which, okay, let, let's play in fantasy land that that had happened. You still think he quit on the team before with, with his best team ever at Xavier? And maybe you never know as a coach. Maybe one of your best opportunities, you know, he ended up having a, a number one ranked team at Louisville 
But oh, by the way, that team wasn't able to play in the NCAA tournament because COVID happened. Like you just never know as a coach when you're going to have those opportunities again that, you know, to hear Chris talk about it and, you know, talk about uh, there was a lot of misinformation about out there about my time at Louisville. And also the one little nugget that if I had known the NCAA wasn't going to rule for four years, maybe that decision would have been different. You know, hearing those kinds of things from Chris, and I thought he was, um, I I hate using this word, but I thought he was very uh, intentional. He came across very genuine, very, he was more soft-spoken than I thought he was going to be. A lot of times at Xavier, you know, he'd get in front of the media. He always had a very commanding presence. Sometimes that rubbed people the wrong way. I was always a fan of Chris. I always really liked him. He was he was a, a good guy to be around. I never had a bad experience with him, but, you know, I, I know he, he did rub some people the wrong way. But I thought if you had one opinion of Chris, and I saw this a lot on the message boards, if you had an opinion of Chris, I think this episode changed a lot of people's opinions of him and maybe opened some people's eyes to a side of Chris that they hadn't seen or heard before. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I just, I can't, I, I have never for the last five years been able to rationalize how people can justify thinking that Chris would have given up on that team of his, one of his favorite players of all time that he's ever coached in JP Makura, his guy, Somebody he'd go to war for any day of the week. Trayvon Blewett, Karim Canner, Sean O'Mare. I mean, the talent on that team to to give that away. As yeah, well, just like seed, the idea I, that you're going to pass up that opportunity in general when it's literally what all these people are playing for, regardless of what school you're at. It's like he had the chance right then and there with Xavier. You're not going to worry about something else at that moment. But I, I've never understood why fans one get so mad at a coach for leaving in general. Now there are certain things that happen sometimes like the Ed Cooley situation. You might say is a little bit different the way that played out this year. Um, but it's also like it, everyone gets so mad at, at a guy leaving. It's like, why, why would he, uh, why couldn't he have stayed? Or when is a coach going to stay at Xavier? It's like Chris Mack was here for over a decade. You know what I mean? I mean, he was here as a head coach for nine years. He was here for over a decade as an assistant coach. When you include that, he put in almost twenty years in a player and a, as a, as a director of ops. But, everything, but even just that stretch, because I don't think like going being there in college and then coming back is the same yeah, yeah, type yeah. of thing. But like being in one spot in one job, seeing all the same people and all the same plays and all these things, the frustrations that happen. How many people stay in the same job for over a decade without thinking, oh, I might want to go do something else or just be around different people? Or I'm getting kind of tired of this guy or that guy. I mean, that's just natural human nature. And we don't, we're not, everyone isn't recruiting us to come work for them for millions and millions of dollars. You know what I mean? It's like, we aren't being yeah. attracted by all these great options like these head coaches are. So I've never understood why fans get so upset about a coach leaving. And then even more weird, like you pointed out is why make up these stories, these fan fiction stories about what he did or didn't do that like screwed Xavier on his way out. I mean, they're just completely untrue. A lot of them, a lot of the things I've and, heard fans say. And, and the, the fact that, Yes, the cupboard was bare leaving. Maybe some of that was negative recruiting that, hey, uh, you know, you being recruited by Xavier. Well, that Louisville job's going to open. You don't know if you're going to be playing for the same coach if you commit there. That may, I don't know from that perspective, that could have been part of it. But yeah, they did swing and miss on the recruiting cycle. Well, Chris it also left. wasn't, it wasn't going to matter because once the head coach leaves, all those commitments usually leave anyway. So it's like it, that exactly. wasn't going to matter. I mean, just exactly. he could have had everybody committed for that class, a bunch of five stars. And the minute he goes to Louisville, they're no longer going to Xavier. That's just the reality. Exactly. So, you know, I, I don't want that to detract. I just, I don't think I've ever shared that on a podcast. And I just, I can't wrap my mind around that. I don't have any ill will towards Chris. I think a lot probably of the ill will is what happened over the next four years. I think if, Travis had taken the program and, you know, they'd gone to the NCAA tournament every year and maybe made a, a sweet 16 or two and things were still trending up. I, I don't know if there would be the same feeling, but the fact that he left, there was nothing there. And then the program didn't perform at the level people expected it to for four years. You, you got really, really fortunate the way that it turned out with now Sean Miller being back in everything falling into place at the perfect time and the perfect opportunity to have Sean Miller back as your head coach. I think that alleviates a lot of this. Um, I, I certainly understand the frustration from a lot of people, especially coming off the year that he had 
had with JP and Trayvon and, and the way that Sean, that Chris had led the program over that decade. But I would never fault the man for leaving. I respect the decision. I understand what he did. And hey, like he said, it didn't work out. Yeah, but I mean, it didn't work out in the sense that he didn't you know, take Louisville on to win a national championship, but he still got paid a ton of money to be there for four years and then a ton yeah. of money to stop being there and yeah. not coach at all. You know, I mean, like that's a pretty great situation. And it's why you take one of those huge jobs when you have the opportunity to get them because I mean, you're now post-economic basically. And um, that's a great spot to be in, obviously. One, a couple of the other takeaways I had was one, everybody always said that Louisville was going to be his last job and he'd never get back into coaching. I think he will get back into coaching. I don't know what it's going to look like. You know, I don't know if it's like a mid-major team that consistently wins that he would take, you know, maybe a, a higher level A-10 job or whether a, maybe I saw somebody actually made a good point. If Steve Forbes was to go uh, leave Wake Forest, that maybe that'd be an opportunity for him. I, I don't know. I'm just throwing a crappy Big East team in Chicago that needs a new coach. Oh, could you imagine? I, I wouldn't can definitely imagine. I, I can definitely imagine. Oh, man. I could see it too. Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, oh, uh, they could do a lot worse. Look They'd at the, the conference, man. If if you bring Chris Mack in, you look at the conference of coaches. Even more. I mean, really, DePaul's the. I guess we're still waiting on Kyle Neptune a little bit. We're waiting on Kim English. We're, the jury's out on on Shaheen Holloway, but things are looking okay at all three of those programs right now. It's really Stubbs is the only outlier. Yeah. Am I forgetting somebody? No, I think I think uh, that's right. Yeah. I mean, I, Stubbs would definitely be bottom of the list, and then I think from there you'd go to the guys. You, I mean, Kim English just hasn't proven anything really yet. They look okay for now, but he hasn't proven anything. And then, yeah, Kyle Neptune would probably be the guy that people have the most questions about. But I think Villanova is still. I mean, they're they definitely have What's the NIL Eric money to keep getting talent. Once Eric Dixon and Justin Moore leave, I think we'll get a better idea of what. Kyle Neptune, uh, uh, what Kyle Neptune is, who he is and, and what it's going to look like. But yeah. And and then the other thing, and I, I mentioned this to start was just going back and forth about, you know, Sean mentioning, well, Matt Stainbrook took that three to start the 2015 sweet point. 16. Yeah. I thought that was a, a fun story. Cause I remember watching that and thinking, okay, Xavier's just going to let it fly. Well, can I, so I remember in the post game press conference, Chris being like, pretty proud of himself about that moment, thinking it was like a funny thing to do to Sean. And then immediately when Sean brought it up in the podcast, like Chris's face lit up and he was like, Oh, that's funny that you remember that. And you could tell like Chris loved that moment that he had done yeah. that to him and that it had almost worked. And it's like, had that gone down, you almost in Chris's mind, I think they win that game. Like that was, that was going yeah. to change everything. Had that shot gone in by Matt Stainbrook, but it's just, it was funny to see them interact in that way. And that was, in my opinion, the best moment of the podcast is seeing that little interaction from just that silly three pointer that Matt Stainbrook took. Yeah. But overall, I thought it went really well. It went a lot, a lot longer then, I mean, we were sitting in the room together. We didn't cut anything out necessarily, but we did take a couple of breaks. I mean, we were in there for probably close to two hours. I know the podcast wow. came out to about 68 minutes. And I had people text and, you know, some of my friends, hey, what did you cut? We didn't cut anything out. That was that was the whole show. Um, you know, there were there were no stories that we omitted. I to, to be honest, with everything that we've done, I don't think there's anything really significant of any show that we've gotten finished and and sean said hey you know we gotta we gotta cut that out it's been well, it's you been, haven't had john miller on yet that's well we were close <laughs> we were very close and uh i i think that'll happen one day I, th I think i think we're to the point where that'll happen one day i hope we we do have a pretty fun guest list that we're we're hoping to happen here in the next couple of months but obviously being in the season it's, it's really tough because we have a lot of national guests that we want to bring on and guys that you know, like the Van Gundys that that he's close with and some of those types of names and people that it's just going to have to probably wait till the offseason when it's too tough with off days and, and everything else that lines up. But yeah, overall, um, I, I hope, if nothing else, for the people that were maybe on the fence about Chris, that this showed them a different light or a different side of him um, and was able to, to, to maybe... Given my opportunity to to heal and some of that, for I know a lot of people that were hurt by his decision to leave back in 2018. 
Yeah, I think it, it cleared some stuff up. And if nothing else, it was just a, a great listen. I don't really care how people feel about Chris Mack. I've always liked him. I think uh, yeah. people feel different ways about him because he's a person with layers. He's a real human being who's not out there trying to put on a PR front for people. He's just going to tell tell you the way he feels in the moment. And sometimes that can be really engaging and funny and and uh, charismatic. And sometimes it can be, hey, I'm, I'm pissed off today because my team's not playing well and that's just the way it is. But I, I always really enjoyed his honesty, his quick-witted nature, his sense of humor. I, I, I thought he was a really fun guy to be around when he was head coach. I was going back, uh, getting ready for that interview. I was reading a lot of articles from before he left and back from the Sweet 16s and their relationship together and everything. And I, I thought Mo Egger wrote a great article on The Athletic. It was the week that Chris left, but it was before he took the job at Louisville. And he, it was in the athletic, um, and he said, I remember it, it. it was basically that Cincinnati as a city would be worse off with Chris gone if he was to take that job because he was so invested in the city. And it was talking about how Mo had put on an event at the Reds. It was out in the outfield. And the moon deck. Yeah. And Chris showed and the up. The moon deck. The and tweet up. Chris. Yeah, the tweet up. And Chris yeah. just showed up with his family and sat out there. And if you didn't know any better, you would have thought that he was just like anybody else you know, rooting for the Reds, drinking a beer and having his family at a game. And and I think that's the kind of thing when, you know, the first question I asked him was about the fishing and, and just the human nature of that, where Sean very candidly will tell you he's very one dimensional. It's basketball. It's basketball. It's basketball. And a lot of times as he's talked about with us, with the show, even off the air where he loves doing the show because it gives him an opportunity to reminisce on a lot of these things, have some fun during the season I, I've said this before on the show, but I'm constantly, every time we record, constantly surprised at how invested Sean is in doing this and how much fun he has in doing it. And um, we have a, a, another film episode coming out next Monday that we've already recorded. Uh, we recorded a couple last week um, just to kind of, you know, in the off week, give give Sean some time so that he didn't have to worry about it here with this tough stretch coming up. Um but just, to, you know, he really enjoys it and especially bringing these guys back and being able to to share a lot of those stories. And and I'm sure there were things that we didn't talk about that Xavier fans were hoping that we would, that maybe if Chris comes, I'm sure he'll come back on at some point or, or maybe we can have him around. But uh, yeah, it's it's wild seeing Chris's family and, and, his, and his kids growing up. I mean, it seems like yesterday that they're in the car doing the Call Me Maybe video and now Braden is... <laughs> as old as he is and the girls are going to college for volleyball and it just time flies. Yeah. All right. Well, that so. seems like a good place to end this one. All right. Thanks everybody for listening. Uh, we probably won't do a podcast again until after the Providence game. So just so you all know, kind of on a schedule, we'll get back to that, that Monday or Tuesday schedule ish. I don't know. Um, maybe it'll, maybe, I don't know. Cause that's Xavier plays, butler on that tuesday so maybe we record after the butler game on the 17th i don't know we'll figure it out either way thanks everybody for listening hope you all had a merry christmas and a happy new year and hopefully i don't sound like i'm all stopped up next time we record stay healthy everybody see you later